Well, all right, so how about the Olympics, y'all? <clears throat> I mean, seriously, what's your favorite event? What do, what, do you, what do you like? Water polo, get out of here. What, archery, what? Tennis, track and field. How about, how about uh, my man Caleb Dressel, the gold medal man and Katie Ledecky. I mean, I've just fallen in love with these Olympic athletes. Y'all know little Suni uh, Lee? This fall, she'll be a freshman at Auburn University. War Eagle is right. <laughs> That's where she'll be. Watch your language, you're in the church house here. <laughs> Um, yeah, we got a little war eagle in the back from an Auburn man, isn't that right? And, uh, and then um, um, also, I'll, I'll have to admit, I, I can't help it. When it comes to the Olympics, I am full out, unashamed American, okay? I'm just telling you right now, I pull for the U.S. It is what it is. I don't want to get to know any of the other athletes. I don't want to know anything about them. I don't want to get attached to them. I couldn't care less. I am all out America. Um, Justin Thomas, he's a golfer and he's on our Olympic golf team. He's about this big around. Some of you ever seen him? He's been staying at a hotel next to the golf course because it's too far from the Olympic Village to get to the golf course. And so he said, everybody told him, you've got to go to the Olympic Village just to see the workout room, just to see where everybody trains. And he said, well, I'm going to go. You know, I'm an athlete. I train. He said he went to the Olympic Village the night before his first um, um, golf match, and he said, it was crazy, it was wide open. Nobody was using the 10-pound uh, barbells that I was using. Now, I was the only one in that whole section, you know? And, uh, but he just said, I stood there and watched all these freak athletes in the workout se uh, section, you know? So anyway, but it's been a lot of fun. We've had a good time watching it, and uh, there's more to come, right? All right, so. 2021 at First Baptist Arlington. Our theme for this year is a journey of faith. So let me just remind you of, of what we've been doing and what we're getting ready to do as we move into this next era of ministry. So in the winter, we began with a series entitled By Faith, and we studied Hebrews 11 together and looked at all these heroes of the faith. Then Easter, uh, the, the, the theme was Believe the Good News, and we studied the Gospel of Mark together. In the spring, the theme was keeping the faith, and we studied the book of Exodus together. And then in June, faith-filled families, we read through the book of Proverbs together. While I've been out in July, our theme is, has been our God is faithful. And again, all these uh, expressions of faith. We read some of the Psalms together. Uh, Dr. Wade preached on July the 4th. I see Charles and Rosemary right back here in the service. Charles, always good to have you and Rosemary here. And uh, thank you for preaching on the 4th of July. Gary Stidham preached on the 11th right up here. Gary, thank you. And then the last two Sundays, Katie has been preaching. Ka Katie, thank you. I, I heard that Katie kind of let some of the trade secrets out, though. You know, um, like, you know, the green room has a, a photo of the king. Who else would you have in your green room? Um, I mean, and, and she let it be known that it was my green room, not hers. So that was my choice, which is exactly right. But I appreciate them. Um, 
uh, preaching for me. Um, well, let me tell you, we're going to be in the fall. In the fall, I'm going to preach a series starting in September entitled, What Do You Believe? And we're going to walk through what you and I together believe about several things. And I'm going to ask these questions. So these are the sermons for the fall. What do you believe about belief? What do you believe about truth? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the government? What do you believe about prejudice or racism? What do you believe about anthropology or gender identity? What do you believe about qualifications for ministry in a local church? What do you believe about the future? That will be the weekend of our 150th anniversary, October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And I'll end the series with a sermon entitled, What Do You Believe About Eternity? So this fall, we're going to look at these various topics and have a conversation about what we all believe about them as Christians in the 21st century. And then Missions Month in November, the theme will be sharing the faith, and we'll look at the mandate, the message, and the mission. And I'm going to ask all of you Sunday school teachers during the month of November to teach the same Sunday school lesson for three, three Sundays a different lesson each week, but we will, throughout our entire Sunday school Bible study ministry, I want to study in the same topics. And then Advent this year is entitled, O Come, All Ye Faithful. So the whole year is given to a conversation about faith. And then the theme for 2022 will be, drum roll, I can't share that with you yet because I've got to talk to the staff about it, okay? <laughs> but it, uh, I've already worked on it and planned out 2022, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. So we're in August now, August 2021. What's our theme for August? Well, it's a faith-filled church. So there's a variation on faith in every one of these liturgical sections or seasons in the life of our church. And I want us during the month of August to explore the meaning of a faith-filled church. So we're going to read and study the book of Acts together. And the summer Bible study that'll start next Sunday night is going to be a, a treatment of the book of Acts. So with that said, let's look at the first installment today. And I've entitled the message today, The Church Empowered and Equipped. And the text is found in Acts 2, and it is the story of Pentecost. And so very familiar passage of scripture to you, I'm sure. But let's look at this introduction to Pentecost today and let it frame our conversation this morning. So Luke says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And we're not exactly sure where they were. This is the followers of Jesus after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So these are the disciples along with these uh, extended group of followers of Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, this whole group of them. Luke says, verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. You can put that word there. When you're reading your New Testament and you come across the English word tongues, if the word language makes sense, then that's what it means. If the, language, the word language does not make sense, then it means tongues, which is a spiritual gift. Here, they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, verse 5, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment 
because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Southerners? That's kind of what they meant. You know, Southerners are not known for our enunciation of languages. Um, You know, the good news is I've been here so long with y'all in Texas that I've completely lost my Alabama accent. But (laughs) Galileans is what they said. Well, the Galileans were not known for their language proficiency. They were accused of swallowing their syllables. They had an unusual accent. Do y'all remember when Jesus was on trial? The people there in the southern part of Israel, in Jerusalem, they said to Peter and the rest of them, we know you're Galileans. Why? We can tell by your accent. You you don't talk like us. So Galileans were not known for being proficient in languages. So they said, how is it that here we are from all over the world, and they're not saying that these men men and women were speaking in Greek and Aramaic. They were talking about indigenous languages. They said, how is it that a group of people from northern Israel who are untrained in these languages, how is it that we can hear all of them? Look at verse eight. How is it each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Africa, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now here these folks are in Jerusalem at the first Pentecost after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Now at Pentecost, the Jews gathered in Jerusalem for a big festival. Sometimes they called it the Feast of the Harvest because the grain had come in and they had harvested it. So it was a time of celebration, thanking God for the harvest. Uh, Somewhat like you and I would have a Thanksgiving celebration in the fall. We thank God for what he's done for us. Sometimes they referred to this celebration as the Feast of Weeks because it came seven weeks after um, the Passover. And the 50th day, Penta is 50 in Greek. However, by the time in the first century, the Jews also celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai at Pentecost because it was then that in their understanding of their history, that's when they became a people. They became a nation, a holy nation, gathered around the law and the calling of God on their lives. So here they are in in Jerusalem at Pentecost celebrating the harvest, And the giving of the law. So let's look at what happens. Verse 2, Luke says, suddenly, he says, a sound like. He doesn't say it was a violent wind. He said, but it sounded like a violent rushing wind. And then he says, what, look at verse 3, he says, it's not necessarily they saw tongues of fire. He said, it's what seemed like tongues of fire resting on all of these people And then they heard something. They heard people beginning to speak in languages in which they were not trained. So Luke shares these three phenomena that were experienced by these eyewitnesses there at this Pentecost celebration. If you're a Jewish reader, it can't help but call to mind Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the violent 
thunder, the, the sense of wind, if you will, coming from the mountain, the fire and the smoke of God's presence, God's voice thundering out and sharing this message with Moses. And so the, the, the idea of the law being given at Mount Sinai, certainly underneath this, even though Luke doesn't necessarily give us that distinctive interpretation, I think it's let the reader understand. So there are Jews there from the diaspora. They are there, he says, from every nation under heaven. In other words, they're there from all over the world. This happens, and then these followers of Jesus start proclaiming the gospel in languages in which they weren't trained. And then I want you to notice what happens in verse 12. These people in Jerusalem ask a very provocative and profound question. What does this mean? What is going on? They understand that they're witnesses to something. They just don't know what it is. What does this mean? Now Luke tells us just how powerful the experience was. I want you to look at verse six. Verse six says, when they heard the sound, the crowd came together in sunkeo is the Greek word. Bewilderment is how the NIV translates it. I love that word in Greek. Sunkeo means to pour something together. It means to stir something up. So when you use it to refer to people, it means they were stirred up. They were confounded. They were bewildered. And then look at verse 7. The NIV translates it like this, utterly amazed. Actually, two different words for amaze in Greek. But the NIV is trying to help you understand that they were just incredibly overwhelmed. And so Luke uses the word existeme. Existeme means to fall over. It means to be knocked off your feet. It means to no longer stand. And then the word thamazo, which means to marvel, be astonished. So Luke says the people were literally knocked off their feet. They were, they were confounded. They were knocked off their feet. And then notice he goes on to say, just in case you missed it, look at verse 12. He says, they were amazed. It's the same word, existeme, displaced, removed from standing. And then I love this word, the NIV translates it perplexed. It's, a, it's an interesting word in Greek. Diapareo is the Greek word. Apareo means no way out. It means dead end. Dia means thoroughly no way out. So when you use that to refer to a response of people, what that means is the people looked at this and said, there's no explanation. We, we can't come up with a reason why this might be happening. So Luke says these people are amazed, they're confounded, they're perplexed, they go through all the solutions they can come up with in their minds and nothing makes sense and nothing answers it. And so here's what they do. They ask this question, what does this all mean? What is happening? How is it that these Galileans, untrained, unskilled in language proficiency, are speaking indigenous languages, and we all hear them and understand them. How could this be? What does it mean? Well, I want to invite you to ask that very same question. What does it mean? And have we given this full consideration as Christians today in the 21st century? What, what does this mean? What is this story about? We obviously, it's the birth of the church, it's the gift of the Spirit, sure. But I would contend this morning that these people were eyewitnesses of something incredibly amazing, and I want to make sure you and I don't miss it, because I think it is fundamental 
to our theological development and our understanding of what the Christian life is really all about as followers of Jesus in our day. Here's what I would say. These people were standing at a hinge point in history, maybe even the hinge point in history, because it is the dawning of a new day. A new era is actually being launched right in front of them. And they sense that something is afoot. They just don't know what it is. And they're asking the question, what does this mean? Well, they just happen to be living at the intersection of the two great epochs in biblical history. The two great eras in biblical history. Because the Bible paints a sweeping picture of these two great eras. Well, what are those eras? Well, I would say it's the present age and the age to come. And it is here in the life and the witness and the testimony and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit of God that a new era has dawned. And these folks are standing at the intersection of these two grand epochs, the present age, the age to come. Now, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about time. Time is an interesting philosophical conversation, though, really, or subject. Philosophers debate the actual meaning of time. What, what is time? How would you define time? What does time really mean philosophically, theologically? How much thought have you given to time? Well, I came across a few quotes from some folks who might help us better understand time. Will Rogers. He says, half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we have rushed through life trying to save. Lucille Harper says, time is a great healer, but a poor beautician. <laughs> Michael Altshuler says, the bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. G.K. <clears throat> Chesterton said, the only way of catching a train I've ever discovered is to miss the train before it. Dave Barry says, aside from Velcro, Time is the most mysterious substance in the universe. You can't see it, you can't touch it, yet a plumber can charge you upwards of $75 per hour for it without necessarily doing anything. <clears throat> Louise Berlis says that time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. <clears throat> and then Louis Boone says, I'm definitely gonna take a course on time management just as soon as I can work it into my schedule. Well, time is an interesting topic. The Bible has much to say about it. The Bible has a lot of words for time. Now, you're probably familiar, and we've talked about this before in the New Testament. The New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament in Greek has a couple of words, two or three words that are poignant at this point. Chronos, measured time. We get our word chronology from that. Chronos is this kind of time, or our calendar. Kairos. That is meaningful time. The time was right. The time was full. Eschatos, which means the last time. But the Bible has a lot of words for time. Day, day of the Lord, year, season, moment, hour, wait, tarry, henceforth, hitherto, dispensation, end, eternal, and age, or world. I want you to think about that, that connotation, age. What do I mean by 
this present age. If these people were living at the intersection of this present age and the age to come, what does that mean? What is this present age according to the Bible? Because the Bible talks about this present age. What is that? Well, this present age is the age represented by God creating everything that is. He creates the world, then he places in the world image bearers, human beings. It's our job, our responsibility to bear his image. However, in the story of this present age, human beings fall and fail God. And that story is told in Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 12, God answers the fallenness of humanity by calling Abraham and his family. And then the story unfolds. And we finally come to the book of Exodus and Abraham's descendants are gathered at Mount Sinai. And that is where the Jews would say their nation really begins. They receive the law, the glory of God descends upon them, the fire is on the mountain, they hear the thundering voice of God, he brings his people into existence. And they are called by God to be a holy nation for this present age. They are given the tabernacle. The tabernacle represents and actually realizes the very presence of God. They're given the law, the Sabbath, and they are supposed to live a certain way for this present age. They're God's people for it. Now we know this present age is fraught with evil, idolatry, sin, temptation, darkness. As a matter of fact, Israel, as the people of God, called by God for this present age are in a relationship with a personal God and they are supposed to reflect God's glory and according to Exodus 19, they're to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and their life is supposed to be characterized by a certain way of living and they are to be a witness to the nations. And so the story unfolds in this present age. Well, as time develops, we discover that Israel struggles with their stewardship. And they began to experience failure, idolatry. There was always a remnant faithful to God, however. But then we come in this present age to a season that I would call prophetic pronouncements and ultimately fulfillment. As the story unfolds, Israel matures they no longer are traveling in the wilderness with a tabernacle. They now finally have a land known as the promised land. They build a permanent structure, the temple, and they observe the Sabbath and they keep the law, all of which is designed for this present age. However, God begins to speak to a select group of people in Israel known as the prophets. And he starts to whisper something in their spiritual ears and give them visions. And they begin to talk about something different. They begin to look beyond the land and the temple and the law and this present age. And they begin to talk about things like a new day, a day of the Lord, an age to come. In fact, Jeremiah will say, actually, not just an age to come, but Jeremiah will say there's another covenant coming, a new covenant. And this covenant, Jeremiah says, will not be written on tablets of stone like Moses, but this new covenant will be written where? In the hearts of God's people. 
And God tells Joah, and I'm going to pour out my spirit on all of humanity in that day. All the nations are going to gather and worship me. My glory is going to spread throughout the earth, we read in the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and an age to come. And it's going to be ushered in by a special person, my anointed one I'm going to send. And he will come and his kingdom will have no end. My spirit will rest upon him and he will set the captives free and he'll give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. But before he comes, I'm going to send a forerunner before him and he'll prepare the way for the one I am sending. And so finally, as the story unfolds, the day comes when Elizabeth and Zechariah have that special baby and the angel tells them, name this baby John and he'll become known as John the Baptist. And John will be the most unique prophet in all of Israel's history because he's actually going to straddle these two eras. He is going to be in the present age and he's going to be the prophet for the age to come. He's going to say, the one who comes after me is greater than me. I can't even untie his sandals. He's going to baptize you with fire. And so John the Baptist stands here and straddles these two epochs, these two eras. And then we come to the age to come. Jesus arrives. And Jesus introduces this age to come. The kingdom of God is established by Jesus on earth. Jesus says this in his very first sermon. In Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then in his teachings, Jesus will say the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. When you pray, you pray, you ask God, you say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus will say the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus will say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he establishes this new day, and it's in his death that he accomplishes the, the punishment and the payment for the brokenness of all of humanity. And in his resurrection, it symbols the launching of the new era because the enemy has been defeated. Death and decay have no power in the age to come. Death and decay belong in this present age, not in the age to come. And Jesus inaugurates the age to come with his resurrection, gloriously defeating death. And so Jesus will even be so bold to go to his home synagogue and read this messianic prophecy from Isaiah. He will close the book. He will sit down and say, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so the age to come has arrived. As a matter of fact, Paul the apostle puts it like this. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul says this, Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, puts it like this. He sent out a tweet back in February of 2014, and he said this, God's future, the age to come, has broken into the present age in Jesus the Messiah. Now, I would say that I agree with that view, that understanding, if you will, of the age to come. Paul puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Paul says, these things happen, talking about what's happened to the Jews, to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. 
Paul says the end of the age, the culmination of the age has already come upon us. So in other words, you and I are not waiting for the age to come. We are representatives of the age to come already in this present age because it has been launched and sealed now by the power of the Spirit. So I'll come back to the question. What does this all mean? What does it mean that these two ages now have intersected and overlapped? What does it mean that you and I have been called out of this present age? We are no longer bound to it. We're no longer beholden to it. We now are citizens of the new age, the age to come. Paul says we're citizens of heaven, if you will. We have a different perspective. We're no longer beholden to the present age. We are now living as realities and representatives of the age to come. Now, let me tell you why I'm, I'm so convinced of this, even in the, this story. If you still have your Bible open, would you look back with me in Acts 2, verse 14, these people say, what does this mean? You and I ask the same question. What does this mean? Well, look what Peter says. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. They're Baptists, basically is what he says. He says it's too early in the morning for that. Verse 16, he says no. You know what this is? What you've just seen? You know what this is? This is the launching of the age to come. The last days. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, this is what prophet, the prophet Joel said. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then he says, your sons. Your sons and daughters, he says, will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter says, here's what's happening. You and I have got the privilege of being alive at this moment when the present age, now we've been delivered from it and the age to come has arrived and we've been called to that age, not the present age. It no longer holds us in its power. Theologians refer to this view as inaugurated eschatology. That is the view I espouse, inaugurated eschatology. That means the age to come has already been launched. It's a new era. Christians are called to live in the age to come in the face of this present age, but not bound by it. And we are the new Israel, and we've been called to all of the nations. And the diversity is demonstrated for us in this very story because there are people there from all over the world. And we've been given the huge task of taking this message of Christ to all the nations in all the earth so that God's glory can be on display across the entire world. It's a huge task. It means we are called to everyone and it's gonna take everyone to accomplish it. That's why he says, I'm pouring out my spirit on your sons and your daughters. I'm pouring out my spirit on your young men and your old men. I'm even pouring out my spirit on your servants, both male and female. In other words, God says, if you're going to accomplish this and reach everyone, it's going to take everybody. 
So sometimes people ask me, well, who do you think is qualified to be engaged in ministry? Everybody. The Spirit of God's been poured out on who? Everybody. You know why? Because it's going to take all of us if we're going to reach all of them. And you and I are not called to this present age. We're not bound to it anymore. We've been called to something even grander. And that is to live in this present age. Now here's what I want you to know. It is a huge task. How in the world are we ever going to accomplish it? We're having a hard enough time just taking the gospel to Arlington. How in the world do we join forces and take the gospel to all the nations of all the world? Well, there's good news. The good news is this. It was good news then, it's good news now. This handful of Galileans, this small group of followers, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Peter, James, John. How in the world were they going to do this? Well, guess what? God did not leave us to our own devices to accomplish his plan. Praise his name. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So, let me encourage you this morning real quickly. The church is empowered. I want you to notice the spirit of God's been given to us. We're not on our own. The Holy Spirit has been given. The Holy Spirit has been given personally to every one of us. And I want you to know when the Holy Spirit shows up, supernatural is possible. As a matter of fact, it becomes normal. Because the Holy Spirit can accomplish things we would never accomplish on our own. So much so that people are amazed and perplexed as fire and wind and supernatural events because the Spirit of God is powerful and personal. He's not left the church to its own devices. We don't have to rely on our own ingenuity, the strength of our own backs and our own resolve. The Spirit of God has invaded us and he will empower us to do his will. And then secondly, the church is equipped. What barriers stand in our way to keep us from accomplishing the great plans of God? What are they? Whatever they are, we're equipped to overcome them. In their day, it was distinctions and divisions, things like language and divisions within society, divisions within ages. Young people were discriminated against. They weren't supposed to say anything. Young people knew to keep their mouths shut till they were old enough to talk. But guess what? Women knew their place. Well, guess what? In this, that's the present age. In the age to come, that's already been inaugurated. The Spirit of God has been given. And guess what? Even the servants, even the young people, men and women, sons and daughters, everybody is qualified now because it's going to take all of us. And guess what? Whatever barrier you want to place, whether it's a language barrier, the Holy Spirit turns out can, can overcome a language barrier just like that. Now, there are a lot of missionaries, I'm sure, who wish they would have one of those Pentecostal experiences in their language training. But there's some amazing stories some of them tell about how God has energized them and used them for his glory in ways they would have never imagined or never believed because they knew it wasn't in their own power. Here's what I want you to know. The church, there's good news. People are asking me right now, what's going to happen to the church after this pandemic? I'll tell you what's going to happen to the church. It's going to be the church of God, empowered and equipped for the task that God's given to us. Because we're the church. We're the people of God. We've been uniquely outfitted for the age to come Hallelujah, no longer captured by the present evil age. A new age has been launched and God's inviting us to live in it. Let's you and I join the party. If you're still connected to the present age and worried about it, get over it. Come join us. We're in the new era. That means beauty 
and richness and restoration and redemption and recreation and resurrection and return. All of that is possible now because I'm no longer wearing the shackles and the chains of the present age. I have been set free by God to live in this age that is to come. And I plan on living in it from now on, hallelujah. Praise God. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how you've revealed yourself in your word. We thank you for giving us insight and wisdom so that we can properly understand our time, our context, our era, so that we might not be drawn to shackled in and driven by this present evil age, but that we might live fully into the age that is to come. And so Lord, we, we pray that it will be so. There may be those right now listening to the sound of my voice who are, who are just chained in this present evil age and they need to be delivered, redeemed, rescued, restored, resurrected, renewed, revived. We pray it will take place, Lord. We ask you to use our church in that grand endeavor, both here and everywhere. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.